Well, hey, good morning, Bethel Church. How are we? Good morning. Good morning, great. That's what I heard. It's great to be with you guys. My name is Dan. I have the privilege of serving Jesus at this church as the campus pastor at Hobart Portage, which, Hobart Portage, I want to welcome you in today via the stream. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I'm sorry I'm not with you personally. Um, they say the camera adds 10 pounds, so here's hoping. been a joy to be on staff here at Bethel Church. I want to thank Pastor Steve for allowing me the privilege to bring God's word to us today. This is an honor to be able to do this, and um, I'm so grateful to sit under his teaching and his leadership and have him pastor me and my wife. Um, So we're just blessed to be a part of this church. Be be praying for Hobart Portage. Uh, We open the doors to our community officially with our grand opening on March 15th, and we are pumped about what God is fixing to do. I'm not Southern, but I like using that phrase. Fixing to do in the midst of Hobart Portage and the surrounding communities. And already the buzz around the campus and around the community is is just, it's active and thriving. And we're excited about what God could do. So I just covet your prayers as we uh, prepare all the last details in the building and around everything, as we prepare our teams, as we uh, go out and canvas the neighborhood. We're expecting the Lord to make many disciples of Jesus Christ as we preach the word. That's what we're doing. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that is uh, our heart's cry. That is the mission that was set before this church a couple of years ago, that we would uh, make disciples through multiple sites and multiple partnerships. And that is happening today. I stand before you kind of as an answer to one of those prayers. And so I'm humbled to be a part of the work that God is preparing us for. As a church body con- communally, uh, this is an extension of what God is doing through this church here. So it's just a joy for me to be with you today. Well, enough about me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. You got your Bibles, you got your apps, flip open to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If this is your first time in church, you don't own a Bible, that's okay. We're going to throw this, the scripture up on the screen so that you know I'm not making any of this stuff up, which is possible. Just totally deflated all of my credibility right there. That's okay. You remember from uh, last week that Peter has just stated for us that we should be holy because God is holy. And this morning, we're going to dive into one of the most practical motivations for why being holy as God is holy is an important thing for us in our lives. So, do you have 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 in front of you? Great. Fantastic. About seven of you I'm going to really enjoy preaching to. The other... (laughs) Did your Bible just like fold open to it now? Because we've been in 1 Peter 1 for so long. My Bible, I just flip it open. It's First Peter. It's awesome. First Peter 1, verse 17. Let's read together. And if you call on him, that's God, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited From your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Father, as we do call you Father, we come today and we center our time around the reading of your word and upon 
applying this truth and the many truths found within this passage to our hearts. God, I pray that as we dive into this, God, that you would be doing a work inside of us. May we not walk out of these doors the same as we walked in. God, may you right now supernaturally use this to motivate our hearts towards holiness. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, my wife and I are uh, venturing into a new stage of life. You heard Terry told you we're expecting a child literally any moment now. My wife texted me during the 815 service. I felt it go off. I knew it was her, and I thought baby. Totally thought baby was coming. And uh, so we're like on the brink of, it's not coming, by the way. You guys are all like, well, is it coming? It's not coming, but it's close. We're having a little boy pretty soon. Uh, We're really excited about that. We already have a girl. Uh, We're not like first-time parents. We already have a little girl. She's 20 months old. I understand we're probably exhausted about hearing about 20-month-old girls from this pulpit. (laughs) Really are, aren't you? (laughs) So uh, Steve's daughter was born a week before our daughter. And my wife and I beat them to the punch in the second. So... And uh, we're just thrilled to be parents. And um, it's like one of those stages of life where it's just everything's kind of new to us. And uh, we're diving in really just pretty quickly here. This is our second kid within two years. And uh, we're, we're jumping into the deep end on this whole parenting thing. We've got nephews and nieces that are being born. It seems like everybody in our stage of life right now is just having kids. If you go to Whole Reportage, you're going to find a new baby every week right now. It's pretty awesome. And uh, we are just in this world where everyone's having kids. I don't know if you remember this stage of your life when you were just inundated with little human beings. Um, I have never been so exhausted by one word. Why? Have you ever had to battle with a little person over this one question? Why? It's frustrating, isn't it? And you try as an adult, you kind of try, you're like, well, I'm, I'm smarter, I'm more intelligent, I'm more powerful. These little kids can't do, they can't frustrate me, I can overpower them. And, and you, hey, buddy, don't put your hand in the light socket. Why? <laughs> because you could get hurt. Why? Well, because you'll get zapped with electricity. Why? At this point, you kind of have like two roads, right? You can either just like give in and just like use force and be like, yeah, because I said so. Or you can just kind of try and push a little farther and kind of overpower them with your wit. Don't put your hand in the light socket, buddy, because you're going to be closing the circuit. Duh. (laughs) Why? It's so frustrating. You just appeal to a higher authority. I don't know, buddy. Just ask Benjamin Franklin. He invented electricity. I don't know. Just don't do it. And here in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter, we have this direct command in verse 16. Be holy as I am holy. And holiness, of course, means to be set apart, to be without sin, to be completely otherly. And yet, I find in my heart this wrestling, this spiritual toddler awakening inside of me asking this question, why? Why? I don't understand. But 
Peter's our guy. Like, this guy, have you grown to love Peter yet? Peter totally knows. He gets us. He knows what it's like to be like us. And he knows that we're going to be having these questions of why. And so Peter's about to unroll for us the motivations that undergird, that underlie the motivations for holiness, for holy living, for sinless living. Why should you be holy? Well, Peter's going to roll it out. You have your Bibles in front of you. Look at verse 17. He says, if you call on him as what? As father. If you call on God as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So there's an assumption going on here by Peter. Notice that he says if. It's really the word since. Uh, look back really quickly in verse 14. If you got your app, just scroll up a little bit. Verse 14. Our posture to God is that of obedient children. And then verse 15, God's posture to us is the one who has, you can see it right there, but as he called you. Our posture is obedient children. God's posture is the one who calls us. And now in verse 17, since God has called us and we are his children, we call upon God as father. There is a spiritual reality happening here within this verse. But Peter Peter, I think, is actually giving us a little bit of a sarcastic warning in this verse. I'm, I'm really a sarcastic guy. I'm just be, be patient with me. God's working through my own heart in this. But I read the Bible sometimes sarcastically. And this is what I think Peter is actually saying, if I could be as irreverent as to say this. He says, oh, you could call upon him as daddy, but he's a judge. And he judges impartially based upon what you do. So you better live your life walking in fear. We like the idea of horror reporters. We don't know if we like their pastor. He kind of comes in and talks about like fear. That's kind of lame. Just bear with me for a second. Uh, What does it mean to fear God, fear carries with it this idea in our society of kind of like abuse at some level. When we think about fear in terms of relationships, we kind of, my mind immediately goes to sort of like that victim abuser mentality where someone uh, who has immense strength, physical strength, emotional strength, spiritual strength, some, some sort of strength, they lord over their power over, over the other person. They make them do their bidding for them. Fear in the context of society. We know what societal fear looks like, right? Have you watched the news about this outrage over measles? Every parent's like, ah! I'm afraid, my kid. I'm afraid this. We have terrorists. We have corrupt government officials. We have fear in society. We are afraid. There is terror. Peter's listeners knew a little bit about, about fear, didn't they? They knew a little something. The Roman Empire that they lived under was an oppressive, fearful empire. Their one play, their one job was to rain down fear upon those who lived within the empire. They would come in and conquer and they would create peace using fear. 
And so their method of colonization, Pastor Steve talked about this week one, their method of colonization was to come into a town and to send people and just kind of pick people and say, you're going over here, you're going over there, you're going over there. And they would mix up communities. They would mix up languages and customs and cultures. Why? So that people would be so afraid of the Romans that they would not even try to revolt against them. Fear dominated everything in the Roman Empire. It dominated the way that they conquered people. It dominated the way that they judged in the courts. In that day and age, the um, Roman Empire, it was very, very corrupt. Uh, Much like our politics today, uh, you don't have to really have any suitability to be in office. You just had to know somebody. I'm not running for office ever. Apparently now, all you got to do is pull the tape on that, and then I'm done. And yet, people from top to bottom would carry out any order. Because at the end of the day, Caesar was Lord. And you never fought against Caesar because he had his machine so fine-tuned as to get you if you tried to rebel. And so in the courts, there would be deference towards the Roman citizens. Those who were like resident aliens, which many of these Christians would have been resident aliens. They were second-class citizens. They didn't enjoy the same type of, uh, the same type of deference that the Roman citizens received. And so injustice reigned supreme throughout the Roman Empire. And yet, Peter tells us, look again in verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. To say to these people, conduct yourself with fear is kind of like telling a girl on The Bachelor to conduct herself flirtatiously. It's already happening. Like that's just the default posture of these people, Peter. Like, why don't you come down to Cappadocia, Peter, and see the fear which with these people are living. But Peter is doing something more than just asking them to live in terror. He's asking them to fear the Father. It's a biblical fear. It's a biblical fear. To fear the Father means that we live intentionally by paying attention to the desires of God. To live intentionally by paying attention to the desires of God. Peter is doing something here that is way more profound than asking them to live in dread or terror. Peter is doing something that if you and I were actually to apply this principle in our own lives every day, it would radically change. It would radically alter what we do, how we think, and who we are. Peter is telling them, don't Fear society. Don't fear the government. Don't fear your angry neighbors or the threats on your jobs or your, or your lives. Fear the Father. Our first motivation for holiness that Peter gives us is that we would fear the Father. What he's doing is he's taking their eyes and kind of lifting them up from the circumstances that are around them to the God whose character is ever present, always the same. He's so awesome. He's so powerful. He's so in charge. He is the judge. Fear is not terror. It is awe. 
to wrap your heart around the character of who God actually is and to allow it to wreck you and bring you to a place where all you can do is say, whoa, whoa, you are awesome. The fear of God is what inspires our hearts towards worship, to see his glory, to understand who he is, and it inspires us to worship him, and it inspires us to obey him, and inspires us to give up the pettiness that is sin in our lives. Our motivation for holiness is that we would fear the Father. We would fear the Father. And we're reminded by Peter that we have a Father. But our Father's a judge. He holds in his hands immeasurable power. He holds in his hands the ability to send one to heaven and one to hell. He holds in his hands all that exists in the universe. He holds the creative power, the sustaining power. He is the word. He is life. This is our Father. He is powerful beyond all we could ever comprehend. He is the judge. And Peter reminds us, look at it again. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges, what? Impartially. I wonder if the Christians in Peter's day might have been inclined to think that God would play favorites with them just like the Romans would play favorites with the Romans. That maybe, 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 if they could keep the faith privately, no matter what it took for them to survive publicly, no matter what corners had to be cut, no matter what they had to do outside the home, if they could just somehow keep the faith, maybe, 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 God would just judge on a curve. We do the same exact thing today, though, don't we? You want to know why it's so hard for Dan Jacobson to be holy? It's because somewhere in my humanity, somewhere in this, the, the fleshly side of who I am, there is some subjective, relative standard that I create for holiness. Oftentimes, I find in my own heart that my holiness is completely dependent upon the circumstances around me. And you probably do the same thing, too. That times, God, it's really easy for me to be holy because things are going really well. Things are going awesome. And so, God, you can expect me to read seven chapters of the Bible today, and you can expect me to sing really loud at church. You can expect me to take every thought captive of Christ. You can expect me to take care of the orphan, the widow, and the distressed. You can expect me to do everything good for you, God, because things are going well. You can expect total holiness today, God. But tomorrow, if I wake up, God, and one of those things is ailing or one of these things is missing, well, maybe we'll just bring it down to 90%. Maybe we just, maybe we just cut it off a little bit, God, because you can't really expect me to live up to the whole thing when my life is falling apart around me. We do this so subconsciously in our culture. A trial comes. God, if my situation was like it used to be, if I was making as much money as I used to be, if she still showed me that she loved me, if my job was still satisfying, if my mom was healthy, if my life made me happy, then I would be holy. If you call on him as father, 
who judges impartially. Impartially. God's objective standard is holiness. Which is an amazing encouragement to my heart. Which is not a dig on who we are and how we do this. But it's an encouragement to us to know that in the midst of thick and thin. In the midst of everything going well in my life. In the midst of everything falling apart. I know that God's one objective standard for my life is that I would be holy. He expects me to live as he lives. To live intentionally paying attention to the desires of his heart. Which is amazing because there will be times in your life when it is easier than others for you to live with holiness. And there will be times in your life where it is much more difficult for you to live holy. And yet the consistent, faithful, never-changing God doesn't change his standard of holiness dependent on where we are. It is objective, which means this, which means God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through his Son. And so God wants us to be holy. We don't have to guess at his standard. I wonder what would change in your life if you feared the Father. I wonder what would change in my life if I feared the Father. If we all as a community here in Northwest Indiana feared the Father more than we feared the world. What would happen at your job, guys, if you feared the Father more than you feared your boss? You might actually work really hard. What would happen in your family, parents, if you feared the father more than you feared your kids? You might actually discipline more consistently, or you might actually find yourself asking forgiveness more regularly. What would happen if you feared the father, if you lived in this constant state of awe, this reminder that God is powerful, that God is awesome, that he wants my best in life, and so he's given me his standard. What would happen in, in, in your life if you feared your father more than you feared your spouse? We would have marriages that the whole world would look at and they would say, that, that's what I want. That's it. That's what it should look like. It would change the world, wouldn't it? This is what God is going after, that his people will be completely different. They would be completely unique. They would be without sin. They would be holy. And our first motivation for holiness is that we would fear our father, not because he's an angry God, but because he is holy and perfect and awesome. And he inspires us to love him. Amen? Amen. We fear the father. But Peter's got something even more substantial for us than even that. Are you ready for the second one? I'll see you guys later. Are you ready for the second one? All right. right. Look with me in verse 18. Verse 18, you got 18? Peter says this. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. We, rem- we grow in holiness when our motivation is to fear the Father, but we also grow in holiness when we remember the ransom. Remember the ransom. Just look at the person next to you and say, you got to remember the ransom. Go ahead and just say that to the person. All right, there was like seven people again. Remember the ransom. Go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. 
Fantastic. Peter says this. He says, live knowing that you were ransomed, which is a super peculiar thought. What do you mean live knowing I was ransomed? Not many people today know what it is to be a hostage, do we? Thankfully. Hopefully. But we know how a ransom works. The bad guys come in and they take someone who's worth something, either because of their inherent value or because of their uh, connection to someone who's got a lot of money or because of their nationality, and they make demands for them to be released. That's called a ransom. But in Peter's day, this word, this ransom, it carried out uh, a different nuance than just being held hostage. It was actually used to talk about freeing a slave. In this day, it's shocking. There was estimated about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. These were people who had been conquered. These are people who had had their land taken away from them. They owed a debt to somebody and they could not pay it back. And so what they would do to alleviate the debt is that they would enlist themselves in the service of someone else. And if by some chance this person could scrounge up enough money, it's kind of like college these days, if you could just get enough money, you could pay your ransom. You could be freed. Peter reminds us that we were ransomed, that we once were held hostage. From what? What were we ransomed from? Look what he says in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, I have to be really careful because my dad's here today. Uh, He's over here. I love my dad. He's a fantastic man. If you get to say hi to him, please honor him today. Um, But I've inherited some probably feudal things from you, dad, probably, I guess. And... um, we know what this is. We've, we've all inherited futility from our forefathers. We know what it's like to act a certain way because that's who you are. That's your family. Um, I had a friend in college who was really good friends of mine. He in, invited me to stand up for his wedding, and he was adopted as a little kid. And um, I remember sitting in his rehearsal dinner at his wedding, and he didn't tell anybody this, but he invited his biological father to his wedding. And he walked into, this man walked into the room. And at first, I wanted to be like, sir, are you, are you lost? And then I realized after he took two steps and smiled that this was totally my friend's dad. He just had the same look, the same demeanor. My friend hadn't spent much time with him, but they just were cut from the same. Right, we have words in English to describe this. The, it's a chip off the old. The apple doesn't fall far from the like father-like, right? We get this principle. We understand that our, our, our heritage determines how we act and who we are and what we do. And Peter is kind of drawing upon this right here. And this whole thing can be super cute when our kids are young, right? Your kid hits a home run at Little League and you're punching the guy next to you like, ah, it's a regular little chip off the old block. <laughs> yep. Taught him everything he knows. Moms, your daughters are like super cute and funny. And you're like, that apple didn't fall far. Right? But then what happens as our kids grow older, this really seldom plays out in our advantage, does it? You guys are already there. I don't have to do it. (laughs) 
The sad reality is that in a marriage, the longer patterns of behavior are established, the phrase, you're just like your father, doesn't carry with it the same sentimentality, does it? Certainly, we've all been witnesses to families, usually our own, that seem to pass down alcoholism, infidelity, molestation, dishonesty, negligence, financial irresponsibility. These are the futility of our days that have us enslaved. And listen, before you think I'm railing against you or our culture, I have this, me and my dad have this in our family. We have this dysfunction. You see, the Jacobsons were Norwegian. Which means that the dysfunction that I've inherited from my ancestors is that of a cold and distant heart. We just don't connect emotionally very well. Norwegians are so stereotypical that Disney made a movie about us and they called it Frozen. (laughs) Do you remember, if you got a little kid, you know this for sure, or if you got a grandkid, if you're like... Kids are teenagers. Good luck catching this illustration. But you remember that there's two sisters, right? Their names are... Um, oh, so you have seen the movie. Elsa and Anna. Uh, Anna gets struck by Elsa, who has powers, right? And Elsa is trying to control her powers. And what does she say? Conceal, don't feel. That's my life! Right there. It was never taught to me, right? It was ne- you never taught this to me. I just picked it up because we were Norwegian. This is what's ingrained. This is the dysfunction. This is the problem of my inheritance. This is the futility that I deal with, that my wife deals with. Right? In this movie, there is this scene where uh, Anna gets hurt, and so they take her to the king troll or whatever, which every Disney movie has to have one of these trolls in it. And the troll asks the question about Elsa. The one with the powers. He asked the king, he says, was she born with her powers or cursed? And the king says she was born. She had inherited her futility. Did he just try and prove First Peter using a Disney movie? <laughs> Sorry. We see this everywhere in our lives, though, don't we? It's so prevalent, even Disney picks up on this. And here's the point. You have inherited problems and pain. The greatest futility is the one that we all inherited from our first father, Adam. Romans 5 tells us that through Adam, sin came into the world and spread to all men, and through sin came death. And Paul tells us in Romans 5.14 that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What was passed down to us from our forefathers was not a record of innocence and a predisposition towards doing good, but patterns of empty futility. So generation follows generation, passing down the same futility. We're like links in a chain with the same issues that we've inherited from our ancestors. And slowly, 
But surely these generational vices breed more and more emptiness and desperation. We're being held hostage by our sinfulness. We're enslaved to these patterns of life. If only we could be set free, but we're so bankrupt. Oh, how bankrupt we are. We would pay anything to break the chains of sin and pass down to our children a legacy of righteousness and purpose, if only we could. But our slavery, it's more than physical, it's spiritual. And not even the most precious of our gold or silver, though we have lots of that, could free us from this hostage state. In our bankrupt state, the ransom debt is too much for us to pay. We all join hands with the Apostle Paul who said in Romans seven twenty four, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Our only hope is one who is not subject to the same futility that we are. Our only prayer is that we could find one who was not subject to the same curse as us, who might by some act of mercy and grace purchase our redemption for us. My friends, I drove all the way from Aurora, Illinois today to tell you this. We have a ransom and his name is Jesus. That by his blood being spilt on the cross, the price was paid and our freedom was secured. We were bankrupt, but in his kindness and in his perfection, he paid the ransom by dying on the cross, securing our freedom and declaring once and for all, it is finished, which means the price has been paid in full. The chains of of inherited futility have fallen off and the bondage of sin has been destroyed. Our captor, the devil, was not paid. He was crushed. And Jesus put an end to his reign and rule in us. We are held hostage no more. We've been ransomed by the precious blood, which means that forever we have inherited a salvation that is so complete Because of the ransom of Jesus. And you were ransomed so completely that you no longer have to look like your earthly heritage. Amen. Your family portrait has changed and you now look like your holy spiritual family and not your earthly inherited futile family. Your identity has been changed from coming from a long line of abuse, a long line of leavers, a long line of drunkards, a long line of nobodies, to being called into the family of the holy, awesome, loving God by the ransom he paid for us on the cross. How does this motivate us towards holiness? When we remember the ransom. When we remember the ransom. When I remember the ransom of Jesus, I am encouraged in my heart to realize how much he had to pay for my sin. You realize Jesus didn't drop a 20 and get us off the hook. He spilled drops of blood on our behalf. Precious blood for your precious soul. And in moments when I am tempted to act apart from holiness, 
when I'm tempted to sin, when I'm tempted to be just like the world, when I'm tempted to not live with the intention of God in mind, I remember the ransom. I remember how much it cost Jesus to buy me out of my hostility. He didn't call me out of darkness to live in darkness, but in light. And so in moments of temptation, in moments when you're tempted to sin, when you're, moments when you're tempted to give it all up, in moments when you feel the pressures of the world, the trials in your heart, too much is going on for you to act righteously or holy, I beg you, think back and remember the ransom that was paid for your soul. It was a precious, precious ransom. You need to hear today how much God loves you and desires you. You need to know that he's not asking you to clean yourself up to come to him. But he's asking you to come to him so that he can clean you up. So that he can transfer you out of your futility and into his family. Which brings me to the last point. You got time for the last point? Is this helpful for anybody? I believe the word of God is always helpful when we open it up and read what it has to say. Look with me in verse 20 about the eternal plan that God has. How from eternity past, he has been interested in your redemption and your ransom. Look in verse 20. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. We are motivated to holiness when we fear the Father. And when we remember the ransom. And finally, Peter has told us here, we're motivated to holiness when we have entered the family. You are motivated to holiness when you've entered the family. I would argue this. I would argue that you cannot be holy until you have entered the family of God. Sometimes I hear it asked. I come from a, a, a time in my life where I worked with a lot of students, a lot of junior high, high school, and college age individuals, and I heard this question so often. Dan, what does it say about God that he created man who would then turn and sin against God? We can't be a part of God's original plan, because why would a good God without sin create someone who has potential for sin? And so we've sinned, and so now if we were good, we wouldn't have sinned. And if we didn't sin, we wouldn't need a Savior. And if we didn't need a Savior, then Jesus wouldn't have to come. If Jesus didn't have to come, then he'd have to die. So God wouldn't have to kill his own son. Look at what Peter says, though. He kind of shots right through that. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What Peter is saying here is that this was no plan B. This was no accident. This is a divine appointment. For God has ordained this to happen before the foundation of the world. God has ordained for you and for me to be welcomed into his family before the world was ever formed. Peter um, preached the best sermon in history. You know it's the best sermon in history because after he was done, it it made it into the Bible. And if you ever preach a sermon that makes it into the Bible, you can kind of just hang it up and be like, that's the best sermon right there. Some of you guys are like, Jesus on the mount, that's better. Well, I would argue that Peter wasn't God, so I'll give him that. And in Acts chapter 2, listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, or 23 and 24. He says this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. 
The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. My friends, this has always been the plan. Your holiness has always been the plan. That God would bring us to himself through the death of his son on the cross. Through his burial. And then through his resurrection from the dead. I love how here in verse 21 we see that through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Christ is alive. And we have purpose now in this earth. The Holy Father sent his Holy Son to open the door for unholy you and me to have a place in his family. When we believe in Jesus and we trust in his salvation, we are saved into a new family. You have been saved into God's family. Look at where you see this twice in these verses. We see that Jesus has brought us to God. Look in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you, who through him are believers in God, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The cross, it's a bridge between our futility and God's family, whereby we kneel down at one end of the cross as a sinner. And upon giving our lives to God, by giving our lives and trusting in the salvation of Jesus on the cross for us in his death, burial, and resurrection, we stand up as a child of God. We have a father. We have a ransom. We have a family. And so what's the point of this ransom and this redemption? Listen, listen, listen. This whole thing comes together here. It's that we would enter God's family. It's that we would recognize that our new family has a heritage of righteousness, not futility. We have a history of salvation and a future in glory. And practically speaking, it means this. It means we ought to look, act, walk, talk a little bit different than we used to look, act, walk, and talk. Not because God has switched some morality button in us, but because we realize we're a part of a new family with a new DNA, which is intentionally paying attention to the desires of God as we live out our lives. We ought to be walking in this world looking a little different than everybody else. We've been empowered by Jesus' victory over death to say no to sin, to say no to fearing man, and to live upright Christian lives, even in the midst of a hostile world. So Peter urges us today, Be holy.